Welcome to A Trip to the Movies, I'm Alex Zane and this episode is brought to you by Odeon because if you're going to watch a movie, it has to be at an Odeon Lux. For me, there's no better place to experience the mesmerising magic of the big screen and when I say big, I mean crystal clear, four times sharper, subtly curved, larger than life, I sense big. A place where you can recline in luxury while sipping on your favourite beverage as you immerse yourself in the all-consuming power of the story, enriched by epic Dolby Atmos that'll make your spine tingle and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Now that is how to experience a movie and there's no better feeling. You can book your Odeon Lux experience at odeon.co.uk or on the Odeon app. Odeon say, we make movies better. And they're not wrong. Okay, just before we welcome today's guest taking us on a trip to the movies, a quick reminder to check in with us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok, where we're at Trip to Movies Pod, and subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Also, while you're there, it would be lovely if you'd leave us a little review. Finally, if you like your interviews in a more visual format, head over to our Patreon, where as well as getting exclusive extras for each episode, you can also access the full video interview with each of our guests. Right then, let's do this. Welcome to the desert of the real. God damn, I've never run a convertible before. Hello and welcome to A Trip to the Movies, where each week we go on an incredible journey with a different movie fan as they curate their perfect night out at our fantastical virtual cinema. This week we're joined by a brilliant broadcaster and podcaster and all-round wonderful human being. He's the host of the award-winning Absolute Radio Breakfast Show, the man behind the excellent Dad Pod and the Doctor Next Door podcast, a man who I began my career with at MTV back in... <coughs> <laughs> taking us on today's trip to the movies it's a big hello to dave berry hello hello alex hello podlers what a pleasure it is to be here with you today thank you oh mate it's wonderful wonderful to have you here and i believe congratulations are in order uh, because uh, your wonderful breakfast show on absolute radio just picked up the gold award at the radio academy awards it did, yes. It was a uh, it was a bit of a surprise. Um, Tony Blackburn presented it to me as well. Wow, legend! Yeah, he was a legend, and uh, he he described uh, the show as um, relatable content impeccably delivered. And when I heard that about <laughs> impeccably delivered, I just sat firmly in my seat. I thought, "There's no way it's me," uh, and it was. So myself and uh, what I realised, we've got a big team here. I didn't realise how quite inflated we'd come until I was up on stage, stood next to Tony Blackburn. I looked around, there's like a thousand people going to <laughs> make me sound just above average. <laughs> so I'm grateful to each and every one of them and the listeners. So they, I've always wondered, so they do not tell you beforehand. They don't say, um, by the way, Dave, just you have to come because you've actually won. No, they they don't do that. Not not to me. I'm sure they probably do that in the in the world you're you're more familiar with the movie world. I'm sure that Meryl Streep probably gets tipped off, <laughs> uh, but Meryl Streep I ain't. Uh, so I just went along. It was it was nice to be you know obviously kind of the first one done post COVID and lockdown and stuff. So it was just nice to see you know so many faces I'd not seen in a long while and, and have a few drinks. So it was a pleasure to be there anyway. And that was the cherry on top of the cake. So we were all really pleased and, and we're grateful to the academy. 
uh, well, you've actually answered my next question already, which was, are you Meryl Streep? Um, but <laughs> but you're, you're not. You can confirm you're not Meryl Streep. That's Let great. me do a big mask reveal. That's what I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> like Mission, Mission Impossible. Impossible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about that the other day. It's just nuts that people have just sort of accepted that they can make people look identical to the person they're impersonating. And we've just sort of gone, yeah, that's what they do. We've never really questioned the tech. Like on the fallout where it's uh, Wolf Blitzer at the start, the newsreader, and you're just like, yeah, sure, they can they can recreate perfectly Wolf Blitzer's face. Uh, that's just Mission Impossible. We've just bought into this this world now. We, uh, my wife and I, we enjoyed for the upteenth time Face Off again the other day. Oh. Again, there's oh. one where you just don't ask any questions about the tech. Just enjoy Nicolas Cage and John Travolta being one another. And in fact, afterwards, I, I did a, a little kind of a, a deep dive is too, too grander a term for it. I had a little look into it and they the actors spent a lot of time together watching each other deliver their lines. So mm. John Travolta is doing a kind of Nick Cage impression of John Travolta and vice versa. And it works brilliantly. But you you start to think about height and hands and <laughs> all these things. It, just, it doesn't work work on a tech level but on an entertainment level it's through the roof yeah 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 I, that's that just that one shot in it where you just go oh that's nice that's really grim because they really do take the, the face off and there's that reflection of Nicolas Cage where he's just it's just flesh you only see yeah. it as a reflection you're yeah. like oh oh I love that I love that right then let's crack on Dave Berry you are now about to take us on your perfect cinematic experience. You are our guide. We are your followers. Let's go on a trip to the movies. I'm excited. Are you excited? I'm very excited. I am. Yes, thank you for taking me along. Now, often we, you and I, Alex, we are friends outside of the, the podcast realm. We can be found, you know, huddled around a small table in the corner of a wine bar discussing, you know, Korean, French or Italian cinema of the 1950s through 60s. Um, but just to let you know, I've kind of gone full popcorn on this. There's a lot of big hitters from my childhood, a lot of action. So I'm excited to be sharing it with you all right now. Oh, this is great. Well, let's begin our journey we walk through the entrance into the foyer. There's an excited buzz, as there always is in a cinema foyer, the hum of anticipation. So, let's begin. Who have you picked to go with? Now, mm. at the risk of starting my dream cinematic trip to the movies on a sour note, uh oh! And I have a lot of respect for you, and I love the concept of this podcast. <laughs> so I'm not poo-pooing your question. I want to make that clear. That's that's okay. the caveat here. Um, I'm gonna go on my own. <laughs> what? I, I prefer going on my own. Now, listen. To answer the question, there there are a couple of options. So there's there's my dad. Because let me tell you. The funniest thing you will ever see in your life is during that, that period of cinema we've recently had where you wore 3D glasses, watching my dad trying to get his drink out of the cup holder wearing those 3D glasses <laughs> is quite frankly one of the funniest things I've ever seen. And it, it could be the greatest Monty Python-esque comedy on the big screen. And dad getting his drink out of his cup holder wearing those darkened glasses is just hilarious. Um, <laughs> <laughs> There's my, my oldest friend. Uh, you, you've met him yourself a couple of times. Toby Simmons, uh, you know, a friend I've had since school. Um, and we, we had we had this shared period in the early 90s of, of seeing long forgotten movies like Blame It on the Bellboy and wow. Mel Gibson's Maverick. 
you, you oh my god maverick was such a good film that is so it's one of those movies that somehow become lost to the sands of time and like that massive third act on the steamer with the card game is just 100 jodie foster's incredible in it but we went through this period in that early 90s and as you say they've all disappeared in the sand of time so toby was a contender as well um going forwards my daughter evie i'm looking forward to our times together going to the cinema but she's not, she's only three and a half so she'll just ruin things what, <laughs> she is, ruined is she... polar express for me at christmas <laughs> why are you showing her polar express that is a terrifying movie tom hanks's dead lifeless eyes staring out at the screen <laughs> she That's loves not... it Does she we were really? watching that we, we've been watching we were still watching that at easter she goes ha chocolate like that. It's, it's really unnerving. You're right. Um, so okay. I'm going on my own. That's how I, I most like to consume my uh, cinema is alone. <laughs> That's no. Listen, I I totally respect that. There is a there's a huge stigma about going to the cinema on your own, but I I'm actually 100 on board with this decision. I I, I really I think there's. I mean, so I used to go to the cinema. Uh, after a movie had been out for about two weeks and I'd go in the afternoon screening. So it was it'd probably no longer be in the big screen. It was in one of the smaller screens, but sometimes you got the entire cinema to yourself. And that is quite an amazing experience. I went to see the Richard Gere movie, The Mothman Prophecies in the cinema. And I was the only one in the cinema. Now, granted, I would, I would have probably been the only one in the cinema on opening night for the Mothman prophecies, but <laughs> <Ouch>. nevertheless, <laughs> I was the only one in the cinema and it was, it was really good. It's really, you know, great. I think that there's two ways of looking at it. It's either you can work really hard your whole life or be really good at football, something like that and have your own cinema room in your house mm. or the cheaper alternative, a more realistic <laughs> alternative for many of us is wait till about two months after release Go on a Wednesday at 12.45 and it's like you've got your own cinema room. It's all it's all fun and games until, which has happened to me, you're in there and you think, i got this place to myself. And then about five minutes into the trailers, one other person walks in. All right, you don't have it to yourself. And then they sit right next to you. And yeah, at that oh, point, <laughs> you're oh, like, yeah. what's happened here? It's, it's like when you're on the bus and there's loads of seats and someone goes, I'm going to sit next to you. And you're like, yeah. this is, this is, this is, this is no longer fun or enjoyable. All right. So you're going to the cinema on your own. What time <laughs> do you go to the cinema? Well, we've already touched upon it. I'm, I'm mm. going to the earliest screening possible midweek and at least a month after the release of the film. Um, the hours that I work in the main because of the breakfast show that, that I do that you so um, brilliantly introduced at the beginning, Alex, thank you for that, um, meant that, that I stumbled across how an enjoyable experience it can be by accident. It was because I'd finished the show and we finished at 10 a.m. and I'd gone back to my flat, uh, which was the one you visited that you said it looked like a serial killer lived there because I had no belongings. <laughs> it was, it was, it wasn't that you had no belongings. It's like American Psycho. It, that's exactly what it was. It was like everything was perfect. It was like exactly the right hardback books were stacked next to each other. There was an acoustic guitar on a stand in the corner. I was like, it, it looked like it was set up to convince people that you were a normal human being. <laughs> <laughs> but, but the reality was something far darker yeah yeah far far darker well I got back to that weird flat that I lived <laughs> in for a, a small period of time and um I was locked out and the locksmith said I'm gonna be like three hours so I went to um to the cinema it was a really really nice um 
kind of one of those lovely art deco kind of Odeons you still see around the place, which is always really nice. And uh, the first um, Star Trek movie was on, the, the Chris Pine, Zachary Quinto Star Trek, mm. which is one of my favourite kind of popcorn sci-fi movies now anyway, and I've revisited it countless times. But I was on my own watching that great movie. Obviously, I, I already knew all of the characters involved, so kind of that backstory to them all. Each and every one of them was performed brilliantly by the actor who took on the role Mm. and a a great rip roaring adventure. And I just left thinking I've had one of my favorite cinematic experiences and it's a rainy Wednesday at half 12 and I'm on my own, you know, and this movie's been out for a couple of months, but I, I, I loved it. And that was when the idea of kind of watching movies at that time of the day might be my ideal as we go on this kind of dream trip to the movies. But that said, I've never experienced the flip side of it. You strike me as a man who has, but have you ever, you know, run into a kind of dingy, dark cinema off, you know, off Broadway on a rainy (laughs) night at kind of two in the morning and Uh gone in and slumped down in the seat because you're avoiding being chased by the police or something like that? (laughs) I don't know. You just got that about you. You just have that about you. But but like a midnight screening sounds exciting, though. So I might mix it up. Yeah, yeah, okay. I mean, it makes me sound far more enigmatic uh, than I, I really am. But thank you for that. I love the idea of being off Broadway, running around in a trench coat, like dodging assassins, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so- hey, you added the trench coat and assassins bit, but it's your <laughs> podcast, man. Yeah, I had to add assassins after trench coat because it made me it made me sound like a flasher. Uh, it's like <laughs> some Going dodgy one bloke. Of those cinemas with the three X's outside in red lights. <laughs> yeah. That's what I was going to say. I was like, what kind of cinema is this, Dave? <laughs> Just how stressed am I when I enter? Yeah, so basically um, I'm either going to watch a family favourite like Star Trek in the daytime or I'm going to a peep show off-Broadway <laughs> in the middle of the night on my own. It's one or the other. Yeah, either or. That's lovely. That's lovely. Um, okay, so you booked the tickets for yes. this cinema trip we're going on. Which seat are you picking in the auditorium? Now, despite the theatre, as we've just established, being practically empty, mm. um, I, I, I tend to go in the middle. Oh, by the way, and the, another thing about going at this time, and I, I shouldn't really say this, but it doesn't paint me in the best light. But I still get just a trill of excitement rush through my body when I buy a ticket for a normal seat. But then I just walk a couple of rows back and I find myself in the premium comfy bad boys, which I do. And it's not and I know that no one else is going to come in. So I'm not stealing <laughs> a family's like big day out seating or anything. But I always go to from the end. So I go from the aisle. I never go and sit in the middle, which is where you want to be. But as you because as you said, and it's happened to me, I've gone in the middle and then someone has joined at the last minute. And, and sat on my row, At not next end. to me, but on my row, but yeah. on the end. So I feel yeah. boxed in, you know, I, I feel, you know, and also knowing my luck, that's the person who decides to like take out all of their worldly belongings and put them on the floor in front of them. So when I need to get up for a quick week, I don't want to miss any of the action. I've got to stand there for 10 minutes, my shadow projected onto a screen in 20 foot form. while this person picks out their like three phones, door keys, bags and everything else. So I sit where, you, where I can't be boxed in. Or, or, or you just kick your way through their stuff. You're like, get this out of the kick, kick. Will you put it on the floor? This is, this is a thoroughfare. So I'm sorry, but you're in the wrong. Okay. So your ideal seat is a basic theft, really, from a, well, from a yeah. major cinema chain. It's, it's a crime. Oh, yeah. But I'm, I'm, I'm two, two in from the aisle and I'm in the middle area. Mm. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. The only film I've ever seen in the front row was um, uh, Joker. Uh, okay. Which, yeah. And it was the last film I saw that was a busy cinema in the evening. And 
almost went, I suppose, as most normal people would go to the cinema. And I went with some friends and it was it was a great experience because it's such a powerful performance. It's such a brilliant film. So I loved it. But that was the, that was the last time I kind of sat in the front row. Through choice then, or that was the only seat available? No, that was that was the seat available. But and as I say, I was flanked on either side and all around. And, you know, there were people munching and checking their phones and all the things that I've grown to loathe. But such a powerful film that it kind of didn't make any difference. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I saw that in a packed cinema. And it, it, you're absolutely right. It's one of those movies that you just sort of like you want to just see people's reactions because there are moments in it where you're just like, I just... I, am I meant to laugh? Is this is this black comedy or is this actually horrific? It's it's a fascinating film to see with an audience. And um, uh, and what what I will say as well, Alex, just so you know, people don't think I'm a total uh, loner <laughs> um, and uh, even more of a strange guy than they already presume that I am. Joke, Joker's one of the only films I've ever seen at the cinema multiple times, and there were reasons. I, you know, I had different groups of friends, and I went with, and that was where I do understand the 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 concept of being part of something, being part of a group of people who have paid their way to go in to experience something that that you know people have worked really hard on on making and enjoying what you're seeing and experiencing for the first time with other people it is a, is a really joyous kind of collective experience and i do get that i'm not totally weird is what i'm trying to say <laughs> <laughs> i didn't think you were weird to begin with but yeah it, it is that thing and i think i think that's it's a really important point you make that you know there is there is a very different experience about going and seeing it with a crowd and not every movie you need to see with a crowd but there are some where well, I, I remember seeing Free Guy, weirdly enough, and it was the first movie I'd seen back after the pandemic. And um, and I watched that with uh, a group of people. And it was such a funny, feel-good, warm, sentimental movie. And after not being in the cinema for nearly two years, seeing that with a group of people, it was a perfect movie. It was like, I, I, I possibly, I think because it was a comedy, and I think the one thing that didn't translate when we were watching films on our own during lockdown was comedy. Like that sort of, laughter is infectious. And seeing a funny movie with a group of people, I 100% think that's a, that's the right way to do it. Well, that's it's, what I thought. And then you can imagine how disappointed I was when I bought tickets for Joker. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. I, I, I spoke to Todd Phillips about that. I was like, uh, I was like, listen, I don't know how many journalists are telling you this, but I, I honestly found it hilarious in parts. And he was like, well, then you're a freak like me. <laughs> I was like, good. All right. I think. Is that good? I don't know if that's good. Fine. Uh, so uh, just before we begin our journey into the auditorium, all manner of snacks and foodstuffs are available around you at the various counters. What do you usually choose to eat in the cinema? Well, once again, it is time for not the best possible light. <laughs> um, okay. You don't take a plastic bag of crisps from home, do you? I will eat whatever my wife has bought in her handbag. Um <laughs> Honestly, I, 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 it embarrasses me, but she's just one of those people. She won't like me telling this story, right? But, you know, because one of the, one of the many um, things that we're so fortunate to, to come along with the, the work that we do, Alex, is that every now and again, we get invited to a, a nice event, you know, a premiere or something like that. And I won't say what it was, but I, I remember, and it was quite early on into our relationship, I'd been invited to this premiere and I, and I said, you know, Sarah Jane, I've been invited to this premiere. Would you like to come along with me? She said, yes. So they sent a, a chauffeur-driven car, right? To, uh, this is, we're just spoiled and so fortunate, you know, and I, and I don't miss that fact. So pick us up from the house. 
We got in the car. It then drove us uh, to the premiere where the driver got out. And I always find that very awkward and opened the door. You know, hmm. I'm not Christian Bale. He opened the door. This lovely person came over. She had a clipboard. She was like, oh, Dave, thank you so much. I'm so pleased you could make it. Would you mind doing the red carpet? Sarah Jane disappeared up the red carpet, but she watched from inside the doorway. And she saw me like pose for the paparazzi. Then I did some questions with a couple of journalists on the red carpet, signed some autographs for people. This is all just mind blowing stuff. And it's so surreal, right? Yeah. All of this is happening. We then get into the, to the form. Someone comes over with a tray with two glasses of champagne on it. Sarah Jane and I are sipping champagne. We get taken through to our seats. We sit down. So all of that's just happened. She then leans to me and she whispers, Would you like a wine gum? I've got some in my bag. <laughs> I'm like, oh, Are you kidding me? That's so beautiful. That's I, I, wonderful. I love that. Oh, do you want a Percy pig? <laughs> she got options. Uh, oh my God. That's, it's like that's after all great. of this, let me just at least spring to some popcorn for us, <laughs> shall I? <laughs> so the answer to what you usually eat in the cinema is whatever is in Sarah Jane's bag. That's yeah, great. I'll tell you where I draw the line, though. Right? When this she is... hears this, when she hears this, she oh, might stop putting weird it. stuff in the bag if you ever go to the cinema <laughs> <Yeah>. with her. <laughs> you thought that was funny, did you? Why don't you have a pickled onion then? Enjoy your film. <laughs> it's got a bit of fluff on it because it's not from a jar. Um, yeah, I've got a I'd... bag full of loose pickled onions, Dave. Uh, well, Close your eyes, marriage. put your hand in the bag. <laughs> right, so anyway, um, I uh, so but my thing, we're, we're, what, another bugbear I have, which is why mm. I think I've been funneled into this going on, on my own when I can, right, mm. is I refuse to go for the full hot dog with the melted cheese and the jalapeno peppers. Nothing ruins a trip to the cinema like a stranger someone you've never met in your life, like two meters from you having a full Mexican banquet, <laughs> chowing down in the smelly food. And, and I despise it. So, you know, a, a few boiled sweets from my partner's handbag mm -hmm. is an acceptable thing, I think. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not a hot dog fan in the cinema myself. Um, I, you know, I, it, people want to eat hot dogs. It's fine. But then I don't eat hot dogs at the best of times. I, I think it comes from when you've, you've been in London your entire life. So you'll remember this very. Some people don't remember this because they kind of vanished. But I was put off hot dogs after we used to see those tiny little metal carts on street corners. <laughs> <The> fried onions. <laughs> at three in the morning. And like. Like the people, like you was, I was a student and I watched my student friends like eating these things. And you sort of look behind the car and you're like, there's no refrigeration unit on this. This is, there's just loose meat sitting next to a clipper lighter that is heating a hot plate barely. And like you got some raw hot dogs that you're claiming are cooked. And people yeah. would go, yeah, I'll have one of those. Thanks, mate. But yeah, man, they were so good. You know, this reminds <laughs> me of, right? Honestly, the, the, the hot dogs we used to buy outside London Astoria too, which is now gone, but it's a legendary mm. um, kind yes. of venue in London. And that's where we used to get, it reminds of that scene in Demolition Man where Sylvester Stallone's character eats the rat burger, but he's been, when he goes underground, yep. and, but they're starved of any kind of like meat up on the top because it's, it's, you know, been billed as an, an unhealthy thing to have. And he yep. just eats it anyway. And at three o'clock in the morning on Charing Cross Road, I'm going to eat a rat burger. And it's as simple as that. <laughs> no, <laughs> what I would have done no. back in the day, not now. Oh, that's a really good point. Yeah. I forgot about that scene in Demolition Man. That's when, uh, yeah, because Dennis Leary shows up. And someone, someone's clearly gone, so Dennis, this is the script. And he's gone, yeah, what I'm actually going to do is just my stand-up act, uh, sell a few more tickets for the live show. And they're like, well, it'll, won't it feel a little bit like you're just doing your material in a movie? He's like, yeah, it will. That's why I'm doing it. Enjoy. It's just like, okay, Dennis. Yeah.
Yeah. All right, then. Popcorn, sweet or salted? Traditionally, I was a sweet guy, but I now have a mixture. And I think that you you venture into the salt game when you have a more mature, refined palate. <laughs> I think that as a young man, the idea of salty popcorn made me want to be sick in my own mouth. But now I'm starting to just sprinkle a little bit in there in with amongst the sweets. So I'm, I'm going for a mixture. Interesting. The correct answer is salted. Um, <gasps> oh, <sorry>. really? <laughs> of course. Uh, call me a man with a mature palate. Call me oh. whatever you want while I'm were eating having... my salted popcorn. Were you having salted popcorn as a, when you were like a teenager going to the cinema? Always and forever. Yes. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely That's one mature popcorn. kid over there. <laughs> Thanks very much. Well, uh, you've, you've, you've actually seen photos and held them out up <laughs> during, during your best man speech at my wedding. So we both know just how mature I looked as oh. a child. Have you got the ability to just flash some of them up now for anyone watching this on the socials? <laughs> maybe I will. Maybe I will. Yeah. Maybe talking, will. Of, talking of maturity, just to go back a step. At the beginning, we were talking about Toby and I going to see those long forgotten movies in the early 90s. And one of them ones, we, it was a huge mistake, right? So we'd seen Kevin Costner in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, and, you know, we, we, which we loved because we were 12 or whatever it was. And then, so then we went to see JFK. Wow. <laughs> okay. That's uh, a sharp which, left. Well, it's, a, you know, obviously full of political intrigue, and uh, some have said it, it kind of plays out like a, a, a work of Shakespeare. I'm 13! <laughs> what is this shit? <laughs> when is he going to fire an arrow and the camera's going to follow the arrow? And it's going to, that's yeah. what I've paid my money for. Why yeah. is he speaking not in a bad English accent and an actual American accent? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now that was, that was a salted popcorn movie if ever I saw one. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I watched it, I was like, mm, agree. Mm, Oliver Stone, definitely. No, disagree. Disagree. Have some notes. Let's discuss after. That buffoon over there eating pickled onions from his partner's handbag has absolutely no idea what's going on here. <laughs> right then, it oh, is dear. now yes. time to leave the foyer and walk oh, down the goodness. corridor towards the auditorium. We're about to find out what movie you picked for us to watch, but first, tell us what is your fondest movie memory? <clears throat> Sorry. Building tension. My fondest movie memory is uh, may I indulge by giving you a, a small backstory to this? Absolutely. So, in year nine, so I was about 14, I arrived for registration at school in the morning. And Toby, who we mentioned at the very beginning of this podcast, who was a, is a trumpet player, still to this day, a very talented one. And that acorn, musical acorn, started to grow into the great oak that he is by being in the school orchestra. And I come into class and uh, Toby's holding court and there's a big hubbub going on around him. And I, and I go over and I say good morning to Tobes and I say, what's going on? And he says, uh, the school orchestra are going to California. And, and I said, to Cumbria. And he said, no, no, to California. Because <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't quite get my head around it. I said, well, why, why is the John Rohn School comprehensive in Southeast London suddenly going to California? This makes no sense. And he said, well, we... How select- quickly can I learn an instrument? <laughs> Ta-da. Oh, no, sorry. <laughs> I ruined your story. No, no, you've not ruined the story at all. So, um, you know, I was... this. You know, to go to America just was like... I, I wanted to go. I was a 14. I thought it would happen at some point in my life, but 
the opportunity coming along this. So I basically dedicated and I didn't go out. I didn't play any Super Nintendo. I didn't do anything for three months. I learned to play the clarinet. Oh, my God. I didn't know this about you. During these three months, you can save it for my next best man speech. (laughs) (laughs) Um, During these three months, I I didn't get any grades, but my teacher said I was roughly I, I became a grade three clarinet. And I went as third clarinet. Now, at this point on your podcast, if I may, I want to give a big shout out to a girl called Sophie, who was principal clarinet. She was in the year below me and she did a lot of the heavy lifting for me. (laughs) (laughs) She she would play both principal clarinet, my part, and turn the page and the music stand in front of us. She was a genius. So without her, I wouldn't have gone. Just move the fingers, Dave. Don't blow and we'll be fine. (laughs) But they won't be able to hear me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I think she she was uh, ironically the mouthpiece for the entire orchestra with that one. Um, so anyway, I, I got up to speed and, and we went to uh, we went to San Francisco. And at the age of 14, uh, because the way it works there with being able to see films at certain ages is different in the States. If you're with someone who is the, the age that the film is certificated at, then you can go along whatever your age. OK. Uh, or at least it was back in the 90s. It may have changed now. But um, we went to a little cinema in a little town in Napa Valley in San Francisco. And at the age of 14, whilst I must admit I ate a hot dog and had the biggest soda I'd ever seen, I watched Quentin Tarantino's Pulp Fiction. Oh, my God. Had not even been released in the UK. And we were all like all in love with Reservoir Dogs. And it wasn't going to come out for like another month in in, in England. Um, and I was there watching it with the the, my host Jesse, this lovely kid, and we just sat there eating hot dogs and watched a movie full of violence and swear words and incredible dialogue. And I hadn't linked to Samuel L. Jackson was to being the small part he has in Jurassic Park, just seeing the coolest person I've ever seen in my life on a cinema screen. John Travolta just being awesome. Uma Thurman. I mean, the, the as we all know, mm. it's just such an iconic movie. And I got to see it before anybody else in a tiny cinema nestled in the Nas- in the Napa Valley and it is my fondest ever movie experience that's incredible so what you were 50 you must have been about 15 years old did you say around 14, there 14 15. 14 15 got back dropped the clarinet never blown one since <laughs> <laughs> it was my drop mic moment oh that you that's so incredible i i was on a French residential, so not California, Boston Spa Comprehensive School in Leeds. Leeds, Leeds, Leeds. Um, I, we went on a French <laughs> residential to Rouen. And um, and as part of the, the trip, our teachers took us to um, to the cinema. And obviously Pulp Fiction had just come out there. And I, we were like, well, we all want to see Pulp Fiction, so let us see Pulp Fiction. And they were like, absolutely not. That's not for children. You're not seeing Pulp Fiction, nor no Pulp Fiction. <laughs> and I was like, oh, all right, well, what are we going to go see? And they actually took us to see uh, the Bruce Willis. Uh, no, yes, Bruce Willis um, sort of sex thriller, The Color of Night, uh, the movie where you famously see Bruce Willis's penis in a swimming pool. And that was the movie they decided we should watch rather than Pulp Fiction. Uh, another another R-rated uh, movie, uh, but one featuring the little Willis. So did you um, uh, did you at least get to munch down on a Royale with cheese? <laughs> oh God, yeah. How much did how how annoying did we all get after that came out? A Royale yeah. with cheese. Yeah. The playground was uh, yeah. Oh, so what then is your worst movie memory? Well, I love it in life when things tie up in neat little bows. Uh, I think it's also called being a control freak, but we don't go into <laughs> that right now. Um, but my worst cinematic experience is also Tarantino based. 
Okay. And so this took, this happened. So we go back to my favorite one, which is when I was like 14, 15. And uh, this happened a few years ago. And it was um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So <sighs> as, as part of the release of that movie, um, I had the great honor of, of spending some time with Quentin Tarantino, um, uh, interviewing him basically. Mm. And I went along and I was kind of nervous and I was anxious, but I was excited as well to talk to this man who's brought so many fabulous movies to, to the world. And, and, I, and I told him the story that I've just told you. And, um, and I said, so I'm really excited to be going back to the States. This is my kind of tenuous link. I'm really excited to be going back to the States to see uh, your brand new movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And he was like, why are you watching it? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> who, sorry, who are you talking to again? <laughs> James Cagney. <laughs> what are you watching, you dirty rat? He said, he said to me, obviously, Quentin, uh, where are you watching it? Come on. <laughs> you want to see it there? You want to see with your eyes? <laughs> um, so, um, a man of a thousand voices. <laughs> <laughs> um, so um, I said, I'm watching it on the lot, which for those of you who may not know, the movie lot is they have a screening room there, obviously. And he was, he was, really offended by the fact I was watching it on the lot. He was like, don't watch it on the effing lot. Why are you watching it on the effing lot? You see, I want to get you a bunch of fives. Can I? Hey. Right. And then he said, I'll stop doing that impression now. It's, um, um, he, uh, he, 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 he sounds ill. <laughs> he doesn't sound very well. Why are you well, watching it on the lot? I did the whole interview in that voice as well. It, it was a nightmare to listen to. It really was. Um, anyway, he said, watch it at my cinema. Right. What? So I'm in the interview situation and, I, you know, and I'm under the lights and I'm thinking about the next question. And, and so but surely this is sinking in. So I then go on the breakfast show the next day and basically tell 2.3 million people that <laughs> Quentin. And this, I was being genuine as well. Quentin Tarantino has effectively invited me to his house to watch his new film. <laughs> I, honestly, I picked this up for two weeks. In the end, Al, I just feel so humiliated. In the end, I was calling him on air. I was calling him Uncle Quentin. Like I was making oh out. My. That we, oh, wow. Right, so I'm going to Uncle Quentin's house. So we yep. fly all the way out to L.A. It comes the night of we're going to go and see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood uh, at Quentin's cinema. Uh, so I, in my head, you know, we're going to get in a taxi, go to his house. I'll ring the bell. I bought a bottle of wine. <laughs> Quentin's done the snacks. He'll know me. I'm that guy from London, right? Uh, we'll go in, sit down, a bit of chat, you know, and we'll get. So anyway, it turns out that, as you probably already know, Alex, Quentin Antino owns a cinema in uh, downtown L.A. And uh, it was it's just like it was just like someone owning any of the cinema chains here in the U.K., so not only was I humiliated by the fact I wasn't going to his house, I've been calling him Uncle Quentin on air, but I actually had to queue up and buy the ticket. <laughs> <laughs> like, like it was, I was just going, he basically said, go to my cinema, buy a ticket. <laughs> and it was, it was packed in there. And, and I watched it and it was a great film and I really enjoyed it. But uh, it was just, it was the worst because it was the worst because of what I actually got compared to what I thought was going to happen, were a million miles away. <laughs> Uncle Quentin, how could you? Was it a lot of people in that cinema going, how come you're here? I was meant to watch shit on the lot. And they're like, did, did Quentin tell you to? <laughs> yeah, me He told me. <laughs> Are you? Yeah. Quentin just walks around like no matter on the street. He's like, hey, you should go to my cinema. It's like, oh my God, he's a friendly guy. I'm going around to Quentin's house. He's what, a lot of PR machine. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, yeah. incredible. Humiliating. All right, let's look to the future. What is your most anticipated movie? Well, um, it only came into my mind because we mentioned it earlier, but 
and you'll be better placed to tell me if this is true or not, but I've heard a rumour that there's a face-off too happening. I, this is news to me, but I love it. Please, please go on. It, well, it was, it was one of our um, kind of colleagues that we've worked with from time to time at Empire Magazine. So it was somebody hmm. kind of in the know. It wasn't just like John from Down the Dog and Duck. <laughs> it, wasn't, it wasn't Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> you should go and see Face Off 2 at my cinema. <laughs> it's oh, coming out. Impression now. <laughs> I, I, um, I, I, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> um, yeah, so Face Off 2 is a rumour to be in the making, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, if it happens, I don't know. I mean, because I, I, I think he gets his face back at the end, doesn't he? So I don't know whose yeah. face is going to swap with whose or mm. how. Also as well, and I mean this with all respect, but, you know, both of their faces have, have changed. <laughs> <laughs> changed a little bit since the oh. uh, since the 90s. I love uh, that. I hope that's I, I hope that's real. And I hope it's good. I hope they don't sort of go like, you know, son of the mask kind of like sequel territory where you know they like John Travolta swaps faces with a baby it's kind of <laughs> look who's talking meets face off what a hybrid also as well uh just um because I am fascinated to see what they've done with it and I couldn't believe when I read it was happening but there's another installment in the Halloween franchise coming out in October yeah yeah Halloween yeah. ends yeah. I mean where do yeah. where do they where do they go I mean I quite liked what they did with the 2018 one you know mm. where he was kind of in the square so he couldn't reach anybody in the kind of yeah you, you know the thing i mean don't you yeah um, yeah, yeah. Halloween but, uh, kills. in the kind of maximum security prison where he's chained in his own square yeah i can't remember because they've all got they're all called halloween something halloween kills might have been the second one but yeah sort of uh, halloween yeah. ends is coming now but i'm sure they've ended it several times before oh yeah it's halloween ends dot 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 Halloween start ends dot 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 question mark. Maybe it doesn't though. So really long, uh, a really long title. Halloween ends for exactly three years until we reboot <laughs> it uh, again. That's uh, be good to have a little bit of honesty in a movie title like that. Halloween ends. No, it doesn't. That's a good. That's a, that'd be another good one. Halloween doesn't end. <laughs> Here and, we are and... again <laughs> at the end, or is it? Yeah. So, so Halloween ends just because I'm interested to see what they do with it. Um, and uh, and face off too. If that ever happens, I'll be. I, I won't be waiting a month to watch it on my own. I'll be first in line because that's. A, I love that movie, so it'd be interesting to see it. Lovely stuff. Okay, <clears throat> time to dip into uh, what could possibly be quite an emotional moment. What was the last performance you watched that brought you to tears? Well, I think there are, of course, so many powerful and moving moments in film and cinema. There are so many to choose from. And I know that when I tell you the one I've picked, it's because it's most recent in my mind and I will kick myself when I see something else that is desperately emotive. Can but I just prefix your answer by saying that uh, when you told me that you were looking for that moment, you said that you'd been crying repeatedly at the various <laughs> moments you were watching of these movies, trying to select the perfect one. I was like, and I understood completely because I was, I did a, I did a similar thing. I was looking for the best moment in a romantic comedy recently. The, the, yeah, the scene in Jerry Maguire, you complete oh, yeah. me. And I was just like, I couldn't, I, just gushing, just gushing. Anyway, go on. Well, as I, as I said, there, there are a few in contention, but what I've decided to go for is a, a film I watched recently, a rewatch recently, and and that's key to why um, it brought me to tears because I, I have a real investment in the characters in this and I have done since I was a wee lad. And actually, as I've got older and I've become a parent, um, I've noticed that 
the way in which I watch this film, even though it's just a, a popcorn movie that's enjoyed by millions around the world, has changed. And there is a scene in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Now, the scene that brings me to tears is uh, Sean Connery's character, Dr. Jones Sr. and Marcus are trapped in the belly of a steel beast. It is a, a Nazi tank yep. and they are um, quickly hurtling towards the edge of a cliff and they're out of control. And Indy is trying to get his dad out of the tank and, and, and get them. And he's trying to fight this German uh, on top of the on top of the tank. And uh, he manages to free um, his father and Marcus and they and they ride off and they're on the tank and he's having this fist fight with this Nazi officer. And the tank goes over the edge of the cliff and it smashes into thousands of pieces. And Sean Connery runs to the edge of the cliff and it's already been built up. And I've seen it so many times, this relationship between, you know, the, the two Dr. Joneses and how distant they've been. And he takes off his he takes off his little tweed hat and he looks down and, it, and he starts to tremble. And it's a lovely piece of acting from Sean Connery. And his lip starts to tremble and he turns to Marcus and he says, I never told him anything. It just. All I needed was five minutes. I never told him anything. And as this is unplaying, as this is playing out, Harrison Ford is climbing up a vine and he survived, you know, inexplicably survived this crash. And he walks up and he walks up behind his dad and they're all looking down and they turn around and they see him. And Sean Connery, <clears throat> Sean Connery grabs him and he says, I thought I lost you, boy. And he just holds him. And you see Indiana Jones, this hero, just kind of melt into into his like dad's shoulder and then it just holds for a couple of minutes and then Sean Connery kind of pulls himself together in that kind of like upright kind of father figure and goes right we have so much to do and just marches off and you just see this kind of <laughs> nice smile that Indy finally got a hug and that flash of emotion in these two characters that I've been invested in for so long brings me to tears every time oh mate honestly you see, it's so when, when a scene is that good, I, just hearing it described to me starts to get me going a bit. It's true. I think doesn't when when Sean Curry lets him go at the end when he finishes the hug, doesn't Indy sort of fall to his knees because he drops because he's just yeah. melted. So in, you know, obviously he's exhausted physically, but emotionally yeah. he's just he wants this. And you're right, he drops to his knees, but it's just the way in which Sean Connery says, "I thought I lost you, boy," and he's kind of he's kind of choked and it's high pitched and it's just a, a lovely moment. And and as I say, it didn't really mean much to me when I was watching that as a kid, but more and more the scene and how much I love both mm. of the characters in that movie as well. It, it's, it brings a tear to my eye every time. I love that. What a moment. What a moment. All right. <clears throat> our final question before we enter the auditorium. What is your unpopular movie opinion? Well, strangely, and we, whilst you gave me a heads up about some of the things you're going to ask me on your podcast, Alex, mm. we, I haven't told you anything that I'm going to talk about. And, no. you know, because it makes it more interesting for both of us and everybody listening. I get that. But mm. we've already touched on this as well. <laughs> if you go from 96, 97, that period of time up to the last movie released in both franchises, pound for pound and overall, the Mission Impossible series has been better than James Bond. Oh, wow. That is a big swing. Let me just let me just breathe that statement in. So can I hit you with some facts? Because I, I, I just I, basically Mission Impossible 1, Mission Impossible yeah. came out in about 96. 
So 97 saw Tomorrow Never Dies. So mm. I'm not here to badmouth Pierce Brosnan, by the way. But you go Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, Die Another Day. Then you go Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, Spectre, No Time to Die. In mm. that time, we've had Mission Impossibles 1, 2 and 3, Ghost Protocol, Rogue Nation and Fallout. Now, whilst Skyfall, I think, is a standout movie, Casino Royale was a really nice reset for the reboot. I think pound for pound, Mission Impossible has done better over that similar period of time as a kind of spy action franchise. Unpopular movie opinion. I'm, I mean, <laughs> I see what you're doing. No, I see what you're doing here because what you're, you're literally taking a snapshot of a period. So you're ignoring the Bond legacy. We're not yeah, talking I mean, about more. Yeah. We're not talking about Connery. What you're saying no. is for that period of time, Mission Impossible outclassed Bond. If we go mid middling to late 90s, when the Mission Impossible movie franchise with Tom Cruise started, we mm -hmm. just so happened to pick up that year with Tomorrow Never Dies. But they would have been looking at what are each other doing. We know famously the reason we have Daniel Craig, we have Casino Royale is because of the Bourne series and how they wanted it to be a bit more hands on, a bit more gritty, mm -hmm. a little less special effects. -y. So they would have been looking at what one another were doing. Mm -hmm. But I think over the course of those movies, and there's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. There's eight in Bond and there's six in, in Mission Impossible. So, you know, it doesn't quite add up. But you asked for an unpopular movie opinion. Yeah, that, I, I like think it. Mission Impossible is better than Bond overall. Wow. Overall? What, we're stepping out. Overall, these, mo these movies. <laughs> oh, OK, OK, OK. But what okay. I'm saying is, you know, Casino Royale and Skyfall are two of my favourite Bond movies in, in yeah. the entire franchise. And that's where the opinion is is is, is very possibly unpopular. Because while I, I agree, you know, the the the, the tail end of Brosnan, I, you know, I mean, for fuck's sake, the, the world the world is not enough. You know, you, know you, you you just can't call a character Dr. Christmas because you want the line. I thought Christmas only came once a year. Uh, <laughs> delivered by Bane, apparently. Uh, <laughs> uh, but like, so, so yeah. But then Mission Impossible 2 is, uh, is awful. It's a bad film. Yeah, so yeah. you've got, I mean, they're only about level pegging there. And then sort of by the time you're hitting Rogue Nation and, and Fallout, you are into, I mean, Quantum of Solace has such a shadow over the Craig era, as as the Spectre, to be fair. Yeah. All right. I love your I love your unpopular opinion. I love it. I'm not going to argue it right now. I need to let that settle. <laughs> right. That's it. It's time now to enter the auditorium. <laughs> Why is the it such a sinister trip to the cinema? <laughs> why, why is this trip to the movies? So like, you're, you're entering the foyer. You're picking a snack. You're walking uh, along a hallway. For uh, older listeners, I, I'm trying to do Traeger from Nightmare. <laughs> and uh, step believe to your me, left, Alex. <laughs> by season two, I will have my own Pickle the Elf, and, uh, and then my, my life will be complete. Uh. So we push open the doors and enter the auditorium. The crowd goes wild. The guest of honour has arrived. It's time to announce what movie have you picked for us to watch and why? Mission Impossible 2. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> 28 days later. That's the movie we're watching tonight. Tell me why. Because, firstly, I didn't get an opportunity to see it at the cinema when it first came out. And I 
I kicked myself about that. Then they re-released it in 2012 because it had been 10 years since its first release. And I was unable to go to the, to the cinema screening of that. I feel my love very much. And this year, of course, it's 20 years. And I, I wanted to have a movie that was made by Danny Boyle. I think that it's important when we're doing, you know, any kind of, you know, conversation about, about the world of cinema and going to the movies. I think he's bought so much, but it just so happens that 28 Days Later means the most to me. Um, mm-hmm. I think that what we see in this film is it's it's kind of, all, it's it's almost like a kind of low budget, semi art house movie in a way, but it's it was also a star maker in, you know, Naomi Harris and Killian Murphy. And also it was a, reignited a whole genre i mean we still have you know the walking dead now you know we're in season 7926 of that (laughs) because people became obsessed with with all things zombie again because of 28 days later i also think that it's it's a movie that manages to 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 put uh nomi harris as a proper kick-ass hero i love the fact that it's because of this film and it would have been obviously an early appearance from her as it was in 2002, you can see why Miss Moneypenny was able to be the character that she was in the Bond franchise. When a franchise as big as that and a a character as popular as that is made a a kick-ass field agent, Mm. it's because Naomi Harris had turned in that performance in 28 Days Later. Killian Murphy obviously has has gone on to, you know, with Batman and and obviously his his success on on television and on film, we, we, we all know that. So, and I love that these two characters are are making their way through a beautiful but scary London. I find yeah. the deserted London really quite beautiful. I love the shots. And I know that Danny Boyle worked really hard on achieving those by basically filming in the middle of the night and then putting up basically the saturation and the brightness in the edit and making it look like the daytime is, 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 is how we achieved a lot of that. But but the spookiness and eeriness of it is it, it is wonderful. I think the zombies are used to just the right amount because when you watch that movie, there, there aren't a great, there aren't many of them, you know, the, the, the rage virus and those infected by it. Whilst you see a lot of bodies, the moments at which they attack are really well played out. There's there, a couple of my favorite bits. There's the bit where they're, they're going up to, um, to seek salvation with the, the cab driver dad and his daughter who have put the Christmas lights on on their balcony in the, in, in the council estate and they're making their way up the stairwell. Brendan and Gleeson as well, isn't Brendan it? Brendan Gleeson, well, yeah. who, who's fabulous in it. And just you just want to give that man... If I, if I was in a zombie apocalypse, Brendan Gleeson is the man I'd want to open a front door and give me a hug, you know. <laughs> um, but, but the bit where you hear the footsteps rushing of, 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 of the infected are coming up, up the stairs, but behind them is just fantastic. Uh, and the bit where they go into, I think it's the Rotherhive Tunnel, and the, the flock of rats come in shadow form at first, and they just rush over, and the, the, the little girl is under the car fixing the wheel, and they're kind of in her hair and stuff. And they run past, and, it's, and then Naomi's character says, oh, they're running from the infected. And suddenly you start to see those shadows pacing round the corner. Uh, remarkable. And then the ultimate you know, horror of the whole thing is when they finally think they've found salvation um, in the kind of outpost near Manchester. And there's mm-hmm. that horrifying scene where you look at the horizon and Manchester's basically on fire. Mm-hmm. And, and they think this army base is, is there to save them and it's the future. You realise that they found an even bigger evil within there than they were facing outside. And, and it also happens to have a, a really nice, happy, non-schmaltzy, 
believable, fantastic ending. And for that reason, and as I say, the, re the reason is I've never seen it on the big screen before. We're all going to endure 28 days later. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So 28 days later is the movie we're watching. Um, yeah, uh, there is one scene that you, you, you didn't mention, but the one scene that always sticks in my head from that film is the scene... Um, uh, where Brendan Gleeson looks up and the drop of blood, I think it comes off a body or a crow or something. A, a crow's picking uh, at a body and it right, drops down. And a yeah. little droplet, and you follow the droplet down and it lands in his eye or something. Yeah. And, and and then he starts jerking and you're yeah. like, oh. And he that... starts saying to his daughter, like, get away from me. He's pushing yes. her away because yeah, he knows yeah, he's yeah. going to change, you know. Mm. I'd say the surprise cameo in that, um, which I don't know how well you can recall the movie because, uh, as I said, you know, we didn't, discuss beforehand what we were going to talk about yeah. but there's one of the characters is um played by um an unsuspecting actor um and it's very early on in the movie uh when the um animal rights activists have broken in to uh the kind of science lab and they want to set the chimpanzees free and yeah. there's the, there's the kind of scientist oh. there and he's saying please don't open the cages he's trying Can to explain I to them can I guess who it is? If yeah, go I on. remember correctly, is it David Schneider? It is. Yes. <laughs> Who's Tony Hares, the chief commissioner of the BBC and Alan Partridge? <laughs> yeah, so and bizarre. also the train driver on the Channel Tunnel in Mission Impossible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He gets that little bit there. <laughs> yes, yeah. good. Old He's had a David good career Schneider. as David Schneider. Yeah, and the day to day, of course. Of course yeah, yeah. big shout um, Yeah, lovely. Um, yeah. I mean, I do enjoy the line in Shaun of the Dead, though, where they're watching the news at the end and he goes, uh, rumours of the zombie apocalypse being caused by a rage virus proved to be untrue. <laughs> Something along those lines, anyway. So uh, you are saying fast zombies, not slow zombies, then. That's, you, that's, that's your vote in the zombie world, fast, not slow? Yeah, I, I think so. I think the first time we encounter uh, one of the um, infected in 28 Days Later, it's the priest in the church there's all the bodies laid out and it's when Killian Murphy, uh, when Jim first goes in there uh, seeking solace, there's this amazing thing. It says like uh, the end is very fucking nigh is written on the wall <laughs> in massive letters and he makes his way up the stairs and it's the kind of bloody eyed kind of priest who just makes that dash for him. And he hits him with the kind of carrier yes. bag of canned drinks and stuff. Very good. Very good film. Yeah, um, I, I, I will mention this. Um, you have been on uh, another podcast I do called Clash of the Titles, where we pitch movies against each other. Thank you for coming on that. You were a wonderful guest. Uh, we actually did uh, 28 Days Later versus I Am Legend as a Ooh. zombie apocalypse pairing. Uh, do you want to know what one? Go on, tell me. I Am Legend. Did it? Oh, yeah. what, why would you I'm... lead all the way through it thanking me for being a guest? <laughs> all, all of that pre-ramble, why? Why take me through that? Sorry, I know it's just I and I remember you're voting sick. for I, you're sick. I voted for I am legend as well. And do you know Did what you? it is? And it's it's such a petty thing, but because um because of the immediacy of how they had to shoot 28 days later and they, they shot it on DV, you know, we're just so spoiled with the quality of um film and picture now, and like it just looks very, very shoddy, like the, the, the images, like because it's shot on DV, it but doesn't that's look part great. of its charm. It's yeah, like I, I like the fact it seems um, budget. Yeah. Yeah. But it managed to achieve Christopher Eccleston. You don't need oh, you yeah. don't need that when you've got someone as sinister as Christopher Eccleston as, as your kind of top soldier. He's so good because he's playing that posh character who wants to be one of the lads and so loses control of his men because yeah, it's yeah. All right, maybe I maybe anyway, voted wrong. No, okay, I, I so enjoyed I Am Legend to be fair. Um, so what is the movie that is most important to you? This is going to be the second movie we're screening for our crowd. It's a double bill. What movie oh, is wow. most important to you? 
28 weeks later. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a bad sequel. I no, it's not bad. It. Robert Carlyle, the, the opening sequence is very good, and Robert Carlyle was a good piece of casting, but it, it doesn't hold a, you know, a flame to the first one. Um, I have the movie that is most important to me and making up our double bill. It will actually there'll be kind of, I'm trying to roll three or four movies into one here. Uh, so I'm speaking in broad terms, but I'm going for Rocky. Okay. Love it. Yeah. Uh, such a, such an important uh, movie in my life. Um, one that I have turned to when I'm feeling sad, one that I've turned to when I'm feeling joyous, it can either be something that can help get me out of the mire or it can be like the cherry on the cake for me. And um, it's something I've, I've watched and enjoyed so many times. And I, you know, bear in mind, you know, being made in the late seventies as the original was the way it deals with, you know, race and poverty and desperation and, and the way it tackles love and toxic masculinity and vulnerability and all of these things are, are just absolutely fantastic. And, you know, th they're the elements you can take away from it. And then you just got the, the true kind of underdog story. It's a totally believable concept. I think the fight scenes still stand up today. I think they were choreographed brilliantly. Um, and I love what it goes on to do, how it evolves, you know, the relationship between Rocky Balboa and Apollo Creed and, and how they become friends. Um, I love that there's bits in it where like Paulie tries to make racist remarks and like uh, Rocky's like, and they call me punchy. Like what, you know, mm. what, don't be an idiot. Like saying those kind of things on the big screen, it, 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 just great. And, and, that, and that friendship, I mean, obviously, as we know, when we talk about the friendship between those two guys, the first image is them running down the beach in really short shorts. <laughs> um, but, 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 you know, the, the, de the deeper part of that is just, just wonderful. And, and, and I, and I love that how he, he's not, whilst he is a hero, he, he, he needs Adrian so much. He needs his partner. He needs that love. And she obviously spurs him on and his motivation, but in the same movie in Rocky three, when there's that bit where they're running down the beach, which everyone kind of apes and, and remembers there's that amazing monologue that that adrian gives to rocky when they're still on the beach where she kind of like gets out of him that he says i'm scared i'm scared to fight club lang you know and and she kind of like is the one who gives him the the motivation he needs to go and do it it's, it's beautiful on so many levels that that whole set of movies so let me ask you this and um, that is your the most the movie that's most important to you is is rocky and you you said you know i'm trying to roll a few movies into one how close were you to actually picking Rocky Four? And did you think I just can't? I have to pick Rocky. Were you what, close to picking Rocky Four? Uh, do you know Rocky Four was my favourite Rocky when I was a kid because it was the one aimed most at, I suppose, the kids. And yep. it's so you know, good. <laughs> the, it is so. It is so good. The the kind of um, the director's cut or the re-edit of the entire movie, um, and what we get particularly in Apollo Two, which I really liked as well, is the fact that actually there was a different movie made and there was one where um, the weight of the weight of Russia and expectation is on Ivan Drago's shoulders. And the edit we got was that basically he's this super villain and only Rocky can defeat him. It's East versus West. It's man against man. Sorry. Um, it's Vince DiCola for you there on the podcast. Um, but, but what we see is like in, in Apollo, the second Apollo movie, we see how he was treated and how he was, because he didn't beat Rocky, he went home in shame and he wasn't invited to the top tables anymore. He wasn't allowed to, um, you know, be part of, uh, you know, of that circle. And his son has shame in him because he brought shame on the family. And also to go back, uh, talking about investments in, in characters and why I loved Apollo as well is, 
you know, just that idea that Apollo Creed's son is helping Rocky fight his toughest ever battle, which is against cancer. And he's inspiring him to go and, and seek out the help that he needs and to try and get the medication. It's just so powerful. And when you spend as much time as I have with those characters, when I'm asked the question, which movie means the most to me, I can't just say one, but I have to say all of Rocky. Apart from five. Excellent answer. <laughs> Although five has got that amazing speech he gives his son. But I'm not I'm not defending yeah. five. Yeah. No, that's great. Saying. I love it. I love it. That is fantastic. What a choice. Okay, we're rattling through now. Just a few more questions to go for our captivated audience. What is your favorite shot or sequence from a movie? I've gone with the fight at the end of Aliens the Cenomorph versus Sigourney Weaver in her big yellow machine. Uh, <laughs> get away from her, you bitch. Oh. Bang. Love it. And, you know, I, I love the way it's, I love the way they, imp I love the, the, the smart kind of, I, I don't know if it's set design or costume design or whatever it would come under, but the way in which that machine is effectively a forklift truck, but it's got all these, I love the bit where she gets the blowtorch. Uh, oh yeah! Out. You know, it's just there's so many cool bits in it, and and I love Newt, and I love the fact that she's defending Newt, you know, to the death, and then that lovely bit at the end, which is always makes for great cinema, and it's been done countless times in different ways across numerous movies, but it isn't done much better than when the airlocks open and she's just basically hanging on for dear life, and and you know, it's holding on to her her mm. leg and you can see she and it's not it's not that she's holding on with her hands it's like she's got a forearm over the rung in the ladder <laughs> and she's holding on it's just just flipping great stuff a great sequence it's wonderful and after that journey that hellish journey you've been on with those characters to see bishop even though he's in more than one piece newt and and hicks all survive is amazing and um I've said it before to various people, but I'm, I'm going to say it again. The worst thing Alien 3 does isn't just be a bad movie. It robs aliens of that ending. You can never enjoy the ending of Aliens as much because you know they die at the start of the next movie. And that's the worst thing Alien 3 does is take something away from aliens. Here, here. Hmm. Uh, okay. Uh, what's your favorite quote or piece of dialogue from a movie and why? Oh, now for this, uh, I have to go into here. So give me two seconds, everyone. <laughs> Talk about yourselves. Right. I have gone for the uh, wonderful scene. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> no, that, was, that was me looking captivated, not me oh, going, sorry. what are you doing? We, but if you just listen to the podcast, Dave and I can see each other. And I pulled a strange expression, like uh, I was conducting. Uh, <laughs> I, I was scared. Yeah, it was. I caught myself on the monitor and I went, That's, don't do that ever again. <laughs> don't do that to your other guests. It's fine. We're friends, but don't do it to the other guests. Um, I've gone for the scene for dialogue in Goodwill Hunting, where... Will goes over to um, rescue um, his best buddy, Ben Affleck, from the humiliation of uh, a kind of university student who thinks he's really super clever. And Ben Affleck's character has gone over to attempt to buy a mini driver and her friend a drink at the bar. That's uh, how they say bar. Yeah. Um, and he, he, he just wants to buy them a drink. And he's, you know, he's a bit of a ladies man. He's a demolition guy in the daytime. You know, he's, he's kind of had a rough life and he's just going to buy the girls a drink. And then there's this like kind of college kid who's a trust fund kid. And he kind of uh, starts to try and humiliate uh, Ben Affleck's character in front of these girls. And 
um, Will goes over. And this is where, and what I love about it is normally in, in other films, we've seen it countless times, this would end in some kind of fight and, you know, there'd be a bar brawl. But in fact, uh, what happens is Will says, uh, so the guy's gone wood drastically and then Will goes over and he says, uh, wood drastically, wood drastically underestimates the impact of social instinctions predicted upon wealth, especially inherited wealth. You got that from Vickers, work in Essex County, page 98, right? Yeah, I read that too. When are you gonna, Were you going to plagiarise the whole thing for us? Do you have any thoughts of your own on this matter? Or do you, is that your thing? Do you come into a bar, you read some obscure passage that you pretend, you pawn it off as your own idea, just to impress some girls and embarrass my friend? See, the sad thing about a guy like you is in 50 years, you're going to start doing some thinking of your own and you're going to come up with the fact that there are two certainties in life. One, don't do that. And two, you dropped 150 grand on a fucking education you could have got for a dollar 50 in late charge at the local library. Boom! <laughs> I love it. It's the kind of intellectual version of Roadhouse. I'm, I, I'm, I'm here for this. And... Um, <laughs> You know, I rewatched it because when you were asking about the moment that made me cry and when yeah. I replied to you saying I'm watching some right now, it was all the Robin Williams stuff, mm. the stuff about, you know, uh, when he talks about visiting his wife and to the nurses, you just realize that the words visiting hours don't mean anything to this person. And all of those exchanges that they have outside of even that it's not your fault, which is obviously one of the all time great moving moments and performances from from the late great Robin Williams. But in watching it for that moment, I stumbled across that piece of dialogue and I absolutely love it. How do you like them apples? It's perfect. That's, I love it. That is a great Great selection, and it, it beggars belief that the trailer voice for Goodwill Hunting didn't go. Goodwill Hunting, the intellectual roadhouse. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have gone to see it. I keep sending my CEO off to movie companies, and none of them are getting back to me. I'm a tagline <laughs> writer for heaven's sake. Come on, give a good break. <laughs> so, uh, just before uh, we finish up on our wonderful trip to the movies. Tell me, what is your favorite score, soundtrack, piece of music ever used in a film? Um, just because it gives me a, a happy trip down memory lane, I've gone for the soundtrack to Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels. Um, <laughs> and the reason is, A, it's got Dusty Springfield and Easy Rollers and Ocean Color Scene and James Brown and the Stooges and so many others on it that, you know, it is a great soundtrack. And I know that it kind of borrowed the idea from the, the soundtrack to Reservoir Dogs and, and Pulp Fiction with the dialogue interspersed. But I really liked the film and it came out at a time when I was working as a sales assistant in a clothes shop and I went and I, I bought it on CD and on a Saturday, which was the busiest day, I, I put it on the CD player and I didn't really know how it panned out. So in front of all of these parents and kids and everyone doing their shop, uh, one of the songs ended and then it just went, can everyone stop fucking getting shot? <laughs> and, <laughs> and I nearly got sacked. Uh, so I, um, but I have fond memories of it, uh, of my time working there and therefore fond memories of the soundtrack. Oh, I don't, I, I think I'm right in saying this. In the, in the list of great artists that, that are included on that soundtrack uh, that you listed just then, uh, did you miss off Ocean Colour Scene? I remember Ocean Colour Scene being no, on they are, Yeah, 100 Mile yeah. High City. That's yeah, it. That's on there. Yeah, that's yeah. in there. That's on there. Oh, oh the late 90s. Oh, TFI Friday. Yeah, great. Uh, all right. I don't need to do that. I was, I was going to go, you know, it's that South Park thing. It's like, I remember TFI Friday. <laughs> so I'm going to stop there. Dave Berry, that is it. The curtains have closed. Your guests are milling out, smiling chatting and thanking you for taking them 
on an incredible trip to the movies. I hope you enjoyed your experience taking us all out. Have you had fun? I've had lots of fun. Thank you for the opportunity to be a guest on your brilliant new podcast, Alex Zane. I adore you. Um, and just for the record, it is thanks to you that I am a better man now, because what this tells us is that yeah. I would have just sat on my own and watched 28 Days Later. <laughs> <laughs> so, so thank you for dragging me into society, my friend. Well, just before you go, we do have our final mystery question of the week. Oh, it's okay. time for... What's in the box? What's in the box? Nice. What's in the box? What's in the box? It's the end of seven. I love it. <laughs> What's in the box? Please tell me it isn't a head. <laughs> <laughs> so you should get question. a mannequin head with a wig. That would be funny. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's just it's just a question right now. Okay. Uh, but I but I will do that for the uh, the video element of the show in future, and I will credit myself with the idea. Uh, <laughs> What movie poster did you have on your wall growing up? Um, wow, that is a great question. And uh, I had, um, so the video shop around the corner, you know, you go in there and try and get them. The only one I managed to get from the video shop was um, Clint Eastwood's Heartbreak Ridge. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> as, as... Me movie expert, me baffled. <laughs> Maybe do Yoda impression, get out of this. <laughs> You know, I don't know the movie. Uh, no, I've never no seen the, the movie. movie. That's why I was given the poster because right, I was okay. nine and the guy was, oh, I have this poster and I was in this movie. The two that you will know, I had Freddy Krueger, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, God. Yeah, I love, I love Freddy. This was when he became a bit more of a comic book. He was right, like, okay. like one of the Simpsons by this time. It wasn't proper Nightmare on Elm Street territory. And I also had for a spell, I had Wayne's World. Okay. And okay. then it was time to put childish things away. So let's recap. Dave Berry, you have taken no one to the cinema and instead gone on your own. You've arrived midweek at the earliest screening possible in the day after the film has been out for a month. You have sat in the middle row, two seats from the end, in a luxury seat, despite having only paid for a regular seat. You're eating whatever is in your wife's handbag, which might be a loose pickled onion covered in fluff and some mixed sweet and salted popcorn. We are watching 28 Days Later, followed by Rocky. Dave, thank you for taking us on a trip to the movies. And that really is it. Uh, Dave Berry, thank you for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed your trip to the movies. Cheers, Alex. Cheers, guys. <laughs>